You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Todd. Um, And welcome to Bethel. If you're visiting, I want to add my welcome. And um, here's what I want you to do. Find your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 14. We are going to have some fun this morning, okay? So, and I mean it. This is, this is uh, an absolutely uh, great morning um, as we're going to walk through God's Word. And to set it up, let me, let me say it this way. That if you were invited uh, to a king's house, or palace rather and you were invited to have an audience with the king, um, there, are, there are some things you need to know. I mean, the expectation of being in the king is one of reverence. It's, um, I mean, there's formality. There's the strength and integrity of a nation or a kingdom embodied in the king. And you would you'd show up, you'd, you'd, you'd wear your best. I mean, you would never think to show up in the presence of a king without bringing your very best. And in the presence of the power and the authority and the wealth, I mean, you bow before the king. His majesty reminds you of your lowliness. And you'd never, you'd never reach out and touch a king. In fact, you don't even look at a king in the eye. Your head's down and the king may reach out for you. He may have you take his hand. And that's when you'd, you'd kiss the ring or show some other reverence. You, in the presence of a king, might feel thrilled or exhilarated or nervous or excited. But in the presence of a king, you'd you'd likely never feel comfortable. You'd likely never feel relaxed. See, the only people that are comfortable and relaxed in the presence of a king are his kids. I mean, they, uh, they run around, they play, they... They break stuff, you know, depending on how old the kingdom is, maybe stuff that's a thousand years old. They cry, they get runny noses, they have to be wiped, they get tucked into bed, they get read stories. When they're scared, they run to the king. Not because of his, his armies, but because of his comfort. You see, children have different access to the king. Same king but entirely different relationship. And in fact, if you weren't a child, if you weren't a child, you could never act like a child. There would be too much closeness. Drawing near to the king with that kind of intimacy would be terrifying, unless you were a child. My argument this morning, what I want us to see, is that the way in which you know God informs your understanding of how you're related to Him. The way in which you know Him. How you know Him informs how you're related to Him. And so we're going to look at some Scripture this morning, and we're going to see that what the invitation from God, the Father, the High, Majestic King, is that we would draw near in in intimacy, and that we can draw near with Courage and confidence 
in the way that our souls long for. So we have nothing to fear. And it's because of Jesus and because of Jesus' ministry. So the way we're going to do that this morning is I want us to look at a character. We're in a series of the types of Christ, the types of Jesus, where Jesus is in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to see what I think is probably the most fascinating of all the types of Christ, and it's a man named Melchizedek. And he only appears three times in all of Scripture. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Three verses, that's it. Comes and goes as quickly as he was there. You don't hear his name in Scripture. You, don't, you forget about him until a thousand years later. David's in Jerusalem, and in a vision, he speaks of Melchizedek. And then, it's a thousand years after that, and the writer of Hebrews draws upon his name again. And so that's what we're going to do. Briefly look, Genesis 14, turn over to Psalm 110, then go to Hebrews 7. We'll get out just in time for the kickoff at 3 o'clock for the Cowboys, all right? So, Genesis 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. We'll go to the, the end there. I'll make some brief comments. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. So here's the setting. It's Abraham. He's gone out. He comes to the valley of the kings. What's happened before that is at the beginning of Genesis 14, he goes to war. Well, what happens is his nephew Lot and his family, they live in this place called the Valley of Jordan, not too far away. And four kings from the east come into the, to the Valley of Jordan and they take on and go to war with the five kings of the Valley of Jordan. And the Valley of Jordan has kings like the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and such. Well, the four kings from the east, they come in and they rout the Jordan Valley kings. And when they do that, they take all of their people and all of their possessions, and they're going to take them back home with them. Well, word comes to Abraham, 75 years old, living in Hebron, and said, hey, the eastern kings led by Kedor Laomer, have come in, they've routed the Jordan Valley, they took your nephew Lot and all of his family, and now they're held captive. So Abraham, 75 years old, says, you know what, I think I still got it. Takes 318 of his guys. Now, they're not, they're not trained military guys, but they don't know how to handle themselves. So he takes 318 guys, has three little small communities. He says, hey, you guys want to go with me? We're going to go. We're going to rout the eastern kings. And they're like, all right, if you say so, Abraham. So they travel 150 miles north and chase them down. They get there, and they, Abraham whoops them, de de defeats them, and takes all the stuff back and all the people back. And so then Abraham, 75 years old, strutting his stuff for 100 miles down south, comes to the Valley of Kings, which is likely the Kidron Valley just outside of Jerusalem. And that's where we, we picked up, and the king of Sodom comes out to meet him there. Now, I'm going to skip three verses. I'm going to skip 18, skip 19, skip 20. I'm going to go to 21, all right? 17 ends. King of Sodom comes out to meet him there in the valley, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person's but take the goods for yourself. Here, <clears throat> some people say the king of Sodom is being gracious. He's not being gracious. He, he's being demanding. He just, he's still bleeding. He should have said to Abram, thank you. 
Because without the people, I wouldn't even be a king. I was destroyed, defeated, and humiliated. And you've won everything back. But that's not what he says. He says, hey, look, give me the person's but take the goods for yourself. This, all of that was Abraham's right. The king of Sodom is bargaining with what is not his at this point. But Abraham says to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you say, I've made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna and Eshcol and Mamre take their share. Essentially, Abraham says, look, I've come into this land. God's my God. He's made some blessing covenant promises with me. If I am blessed, if I am rich, if I am wealthy, if I have any right to this land, it'll come from God. It's not going to come from you. So at the end of the day, when people bless the name of Abraham, they're going to bless the name of God, not the king of Sodom. That's what he's saying. Now here's the reality. Start in verse 17, skip three verses, pick up in 21. The story is complete in itself. If you were writing it, it's very succinct. You know all the details. Except in verse 18 through 20, the narrator, Moses, the writer, drops in this bit about a man named Melchizedek that we've never heard of before and we won't hear of for another thousand years. Look at what it says, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, think Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor, creator, owner of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It's Melchizedek. We don't know where he came from. He's, uh, he's introduced. He's gone as quickly as he came. Here's some things to know about him. He had an important name. His name means Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he's from an important place. Salem, which means peace. He's the king of peace. And the text says he has an important job. He's a king priest. And the audience reading this that's wandering in the wilderness as Moses is writing this and recounting their history to them, they would have said, well, wait a minute, a king priest. Under the Mosaic law, this Mosaic covenant we just got from God, it's impossible for somebody to be king and a priest. See, the king, they mediate God and his will and his law and his rule to the people. But the priest, he comforts and cares and mediates the people to God. Those two people can't be the same. Moses says, I don't know, he's just there. He blesses Abraham, one who's greater. We find out Melchizedek is greater, blesses the lesser. And then he receives Abraham's offering. He, he serves as a priest to Abraham. He refreshes him bodily and physically with bread and wine. It's hard for us to read that in the church and not have our ears perk up. And he receives Abraham's offering as Abraham seeks to, to give, to, 
to say, to recognize God is the owner of everything. Melchizedek serves as the priest to receive that. He's a, he's a mystery. We don't know where he came from. So the church has speculated all through the church history of who, who could Melchizedek be. Well, Martin Luther thought he was Shem, the son of Noah, who likely would have been alive during this time. It's probably not Shem, though. Some think he might be an angel, but doesn't sound like an angel. Angels don't have conversations like this. Could it be Jesus? The pre-incarnate Jesus that has come and dropped into the story. Well, a lot have thought that. I, I, I don't take it that way. I'll tell you why. We'll see it in Hebrews. Hebrews says he's like Jesus. He's a representative. Jesus is a, is a type of Melchizedek, but he's not Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up. He's a godly man who's a monotheist. When we thought all the world was lost, we realized there were other people around who still loved God and were following him. And here, Melchizedek's leading his people in Jerusalem as a king and as a priest of God Most High. All of this is to say, this is what Abraham would have understood. He would have known he wasn't alone. That there was another, greater than he was, who also knows and worshipped God. He also would have known, he would have been reminded in that moment that he's not the hero. At 75 years old, strutting back, looking at all the young guys going, see, come on, take me if you can, right? Melchizedek's there to go, no, you know what? Let's remind ourselves of this. God owns everything. He delivered the enemies into your hands. And thirdly, Melchizedek, or Abraham would have known that his faith in God was not in vain. See, what Melchizedek does in blessing him and receiving a blessing is the very beginning of the fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Covenant promises. Here, the very first taste. Well, that's Melchizedek in Genesis. And you know what? That's it. It's going to take a thousand years for his name to show up in Scripture again. So let's do that. Let's go to Psalm 110. I won't be there very long, so if you, you might miss it, all right? So, so Psalm 110, get over there. Psalm 110 is written by David. David has just been installed as a king of guess where? Jerusalem. King of Israel in Jerusalem. First king of Israel in Jerusalem. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. A messianic psalm that gives us a, a picture, a vision of Jesus. Listen to the words. David is caught up in the spirit in prayer and inspiration. And he says this, The Lord says to my Lord. Did you notice the different capitalizations there? The first one, Yahweh, the intimate, sovereign name of God that Israel knew God by. The Lord, the Lord God, says to my Lord, Adonai, my ruler, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord says to my Lord. And David is this, this heavenly scene, and God most high is saying to the Lord, his Lord, his king, David's king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Matthew chapter 22, 
Jesus is going to teach this passage to some disgruntled religious leaders. And Jesus is going to say to them, who do you think the Messiah is? And then he takes them to Psalm 110. And he says, look, David's not saying this about himself. He's saying this about another. That God says to the Lord, sit at my right hand. And David's seeing it. What David is seeing is that one of his ancestors is going to sit on the throne. And this ancestor is going to be greater than he is. David seeing the Messiah. And then in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And so he's, he's a king and he has a scepter and he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies and he's going to be loved and served and he's holy and pure and splendid and unstained. And that's what David sees. And then in verse 4, look at this. And the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord swears this binding oath. that This is how it's going to be. The one that's going to sit on this throne, the Messiah to come. He, by my oath, is a priest and that will not change. It will be accomplished. This king is going to be a priest, this ruler from David's line. Now, this would have been unthinkable for the Jews at the time. There's no way that a Jewish king from the line of Judah could be a priest who's from the line of Levi. They don't go together. People who have tried that are killed by God when they do it. But what this is saying, he's going to come, he's going to come as a king, he's going to come as a priest, and he won't bring people to God the way the Aaronic priests do, the priests from Aaron, the priests under the law. He's going to bring people to God in a different way. Not through the sacrifices of animals for cleansing, but he's a different kind of priest. Holy, righteous, king of peace, and he's going to do it forever. David might have thought he was a successor of Melchizedek. What he discovers is he's actually the predecessor of the real one to come. No end to his rule, no end to his reign. Okay, you still with me? That's Melchizedek the second time. One thousand years later, go to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, as you're turning there, th this is the thing. The writer of Hebrews sees this connection. The writer of Hebrews, in fact, can hardly be contained. He brings it up in chapter 5. He gets so excited about it and then realizes his audience that he's writing to, they're not tracking with him because they just, they're not mature. So he talks to them about maturity. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he brings it back up. And here's what he does. This is the strategy of the text, chapter 7. First three verses is, a, is an exposition of Genesis 14. He just recounts the story. Here's Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, of the God Most High. He meets Abraham in the Valley of the Kings. 
Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, and then he goes on to talk about his name. His name is important. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Where he's from, he's the king of Salem, king of peace, a, a priest of the God Most High. And then in three, he's making this point. He wants his readers to know, hey, listen, Jesus is greater than any priest you've ever known. He's a priest like you've never known before. And like Melchizedek, he has no genealogy. Well, Melchizedek came from somebody. We just don't literarily know where he came from. But Jesus, Jesus' genealogy extends into eternity past, and there is no end to his reign. And then in 4 through 10 of Hebrews, what, what he's doing is he's making the case Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if he's greater than Abraham, it means he's greater than any Levite priest there ever was because the Levite priests were in the loins of Abraham. That's the argument. And then in verse 11, he's going to build the case that the priesthood of Jesus is far superior. Listen to what it says, and then we'll explain it, and I hope it will make some sense to you. In verse 11, now, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Why did we need another priest? If the priestly system had been perfect, but it wasn't. And then he says in verse 12, for there was a change in the priesthood. And since there's a change, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. We, we weren't prepared for this in our religious system. In verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, meaning he didn't inherit it, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then he says, for on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, it is important at this point that I would say what is on everybody's mind. I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea why this is important. That's pretty cool. We went to three places in the Bible. What does it matter? Well, the reason we struggle with it, and I'll tell you, I've struggled all week with it. The, the reason we struggle with it is because we don't have a framework for priesthood. We, 
At least we think we don't. So it, let me do this. Let me change the job type from job title priest to job description, which is advocate or mediator. That, that gets us a little closer. So that was the priest's job. Here's what they did. They were advocates. They were mediators for the people before God. And there's a couple of reasons, though, why there were problems with the priest. And the first one is that they weren't very good at it. You can open up Isaiah chapter 1 and God takes the priests to task. And then it doesn't get any better when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of Malachi. You see the priests, they're offering up crippled and blind animals in sacrifice to God. And God says, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even give that to your mother-in-law. And you're offering it to me? The priesthood was broken. He calls them evil. Secondly, even if you did have a good priest, one who really loved God and really served God's people and, and did all that he was, he was going to die. And then his sorry son or nephew or grandson was going to take over and he'd be in back where you were. But thirdly, why it failed is because the sacrifices of the priests were insufficient. Hebrews is going to say, look, the blood of bulls and goats, they cannot cleanse your sin, they cannot take it away. They might cover over it for a day, but it's like giving a bath on the outside of you. It wouldn't last very long in this bloody business on top of that of sacrifice after sacrifice. And no matter how much blood was spilt, it couldn't cleanse your conscience. And so you might have an animal, you bring him, he dies, but you go lay your head down on the pillow at night and you know that that's still yours. So in all this, what, what God's Word is doing is it's showing us that there are, those, listen, there are those in the Old Testament, they had a desire to know God. They had a desire to draw near to Him. They had a desire to love Him. You read it through the Psalms all the times. But the way, the access, the way to draw near to God was broken. On the one hand, the law was perfect at revealing God's holiness. But it couldn't make you holy. It couldn't change you. All it could do was render you guilty. So the way they knew God was through the law and the sacrifices and the priests. So how does that relate to us? Well, let me ask you a question. What is it in your life that you hope nobody finds out about? D don't answer that out loud, please. Here's another one. What are you insecure about? In what ways are you trying to prove yourself or justify yourself? It, let me ask it this way. In, in, in what ways are you trying to seek validation from others for your worth or your significance? What, what, what ways are you trying to show that you really are worthy of being loved, that you really are worthy of being somebody's friend, that you really are fun to be around? How are you doing that? What, what do you count on to set you apart so that people would notice you or accept you? Maybe your intelligence, maybe your money, maybe your athletic prowess, maybe your good looks, maybe your humor or your sarcasm. Maybe it's by being the good Christian. So what, what I'm arguing is, 
is that whether you're a Christian or not, you are hardwired in a way that seeks validation. You need to be accepted both on the outside by others and on the inside to even be able to live with yourself. So we all have a picture in mind of how we think other people see us. We look in the mirror and we think, oh, I look pretty good today. And we hope or think that's how everybody sees us, but we know that unravels because we find a picture of ourselves somewhere and it catches us from an angle that we can't see in the mirror and we think, who is that terrible looking person? And we're horrified or we're ashamed or we're embarrassed because we've seen ourselves as a, at an angle that we hoped nobody would ever see us. Listen, I, that's just an illustration of physical appearance. We walk around with an image in our mind of what we look like as a person to people. What's our character like? What's our soul like? What are we hoping people believe about us? Are we, are we lovable or are we unlovable? Are you a good person, a bad person? If you're good, how good? If you're bad, how bad? Are you beautiful inside or are you ugly inside? We walk around with an image in our heads of what we hope to be, what we hope we look like to other people, but we don't actually, and we're deep down, we're afraid we don't. Well, if that's how you are, you, you can thank Adam and Eve for that. It's, it's part of what sin's done to us. There are ugly parts about us. There are sinful parts about us. And we, we try to cover them up and hope that nobody sees. And not only that, we, we try to make the case and build the case every day in our relationships and in our interactions with each other that we're not really that way. We, we, we try hard enough, we can prove convincingly enough, we can make the case, we can act the part, then maybe somebody's going to render the verdict. Maybe somebody's going to come along and validate us and accept us. To say about us what we're hoping they would say. Well, so if that's you, then here's the deal. You know all about the priestly system. And you know all about the ways it fails you and that you're not really good at it. And if you could change yourself, you already would have. And you don't have the tools because they don't really work. And deep down, if they don't work on a human level, then we know that our attempts to validate ourselves before God, all the ways that we try to mediate our presence before God, it's like what the writer of Hebrews says, it's weak and it's useless in verse 18. But yet all of this is about an invitation to draw near to God. But listen, drawing near to God for most people, that is a terrifying prospect. Particularly if we're drawing near to God as our own priest. It's too much closeness. We'd be exposed as the frauds we are. We'd be exposed as fools. We like God out there in the distance being God. And we want to enjoy being in His kingdom. We, the prospect of Him knowing our name, much less being brought close to Him, that's terrifying. 
But that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Verse 18 and 19, a better hope is introduced through which we can draw near to God. And look at verse 20 through 22. And it's not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were such without an oath. But this was... This one was made priest with an oath and by one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. God has sworn an oath. He's not going to change his mind. What Jesus is, as the acceptable high priest, that will never change. And we not, we've got to know that until we get to the next part. And you get to 24 and 25, and it says, but he holds the priesthood permanently. He continues it forever. And in verse 25, consequently. So because of that, God's sworn an oath. It's never going away. He'll hold it permanently. And so because of that, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me try to bring some things together here. When it says that he lives to make intercession for them, it means that Jesus stands in your place. He's your advocate. The writer of Hebrews weaves all these imageries so that we understand who Jesus is. In chapter 2, He's our brother. He's the one who, who's the founder, the protector of our salvation. And he calls us brothers and sisters. And in Hebrews 3, he's not a servant like Moses is. He's a son. And because he's a son, we share in that with him. Sons and daughters. He's our big brother. And in four, he shares in our sufferings. He knows us. He sympathizes with us. He completely entered into our experience. And then in five through seven, he's this high priest. He's an advocate, our, our brother, the son who came to redeem us, not as servants, but as sons, as daughters, to bring us into the family as children of God. So that when we draw near, we draw near to the king as his children. But here's the deal. And I want to make sure we understand this, and we're going to get out of here. Jesus is not outside of us begging on our behalf. He's not trying to convince the Father that you're going to try harder next time, even though you didn't this last time. You'll, you'll do better this next time. It's not like Jesus is staking His name on your performance. See, you're... You're in Him. He's not outside of you. You're in Him. You're united to Him. You have union with Christ. That's the way Paul puts it all over his letters. Your case before God's not dependent on you. Your case is dependent upon Jesus. He stands in the place of your life. So listen, being a Christian is not just simply saying, you know what? Jesus is my great example. 
And so I pray to him and I ask him for help and I, and I try to live like Jesus lived and I try to love my neighbor and I go to church and I read my Bible and I try all these sorts of things. That's trying to appear in court as your own attorney, as your own advocate. See, and it's... Some people understand it this way. Look, he died for my sins, and I, I don't really know how it worked out, but I don't, I don't know what it means that he's my advocate, that he's my substitute, that his life is mine because I'm in him. See, the way in which you know God informs your understanding of how you're related to him. You're either trying to know God as your own priest, your own advocate, or you're embracing the high priest Jesus, who's your brother, who presents you as son or daughter. And he can do it in verse 26 because he's innocent, he's holy, he's blameless, he's unstained. And in verse 27 and 28, he's unlike any of the other high priests. He doesn't have to keep making sacrifices over and over. He sacrificed once and for all. And he's been appointed as a son and he's been made perfect. And he says... To the Father, this is what he says. Father, you demand justice because you're righteous and you're holy. King of righteousness. You're a just God. And these are my friends. This is my brother and this is my sister. And I'm speaking on their behalf because you know what? They're guilty. But I made the payment. There's my blood, and it would be unjust. You can't have two payments for the same debt. Justice has been served. Your righteousness has been satisfied. Your very justice, your holiness, all of that means your complete embrace and acceptance and love, the love with which you loved me, is theirs for all eternity. You are His. There's one last image I don't want us to miss. A high priest wore what was called an ephod. And an ephod was this linen, and it was laced with gold all the way through it, and it had on it, sewed into it, all the jewels of the kingdom, the diamonds and the, and the gold and the silver and the rubies and the pearls. And it was massive. It was the most valuable thing in the nation of Israel, and it was worn by the high priest. And you say, well, why, why did he wear that? Well, if you ask a bride, she'd know the answer to the question. If you asked a queen that's being presented at an international state dinner in all of her sequence, you'd know the answer to the question. The high priest would pick up the candle to head into the holy of holies, and, and the reflection was dazzling. The priest was an absolute beauty. And to say Jesus Christ is our high priest is to say the Father's worked everything out in the Godhead and your sin's been dealt with, but more than that, you've been more than just pardoned. It means when the Father looks at you, He sees you in splendid, glorious beauty.
You've been made beautiful. To say, look, Christianity it just means that my sins are forgiven and I've got to try to do my best now to do my part. You don't understand Christianity. Your sins have been forgiven and you're a son and a daughter in the presence of a king and you're beautiful. You're beautiful. That's what it means. You get more than just pardoned. You get Jesus. He has gotten you. You're in Him. This has several implications. I will tell you four quickly. One, it means, because of that, when you embrace Jesus as your high priest who presents you to God, you get an entirely, completely new identity. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're beautiful, you're regal, you're totally accepted, totally loved. Every other opinion of you, every validation or acceptance you're tempted to hope for from others, including yourself, fades in importance. You have the acceptance of the high king. Secondly, you're completely cleansed of your guilt. You, you no longer serve as your own advocate, your own priest, trying to justify yourself. You are cleansed. Thirdly, you are free to live in joy. You know, the, the constant need to justify yourself, and you're free from that. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. Somebody comes, criticizes you, you're, they're disappointed in you, they, it's not going to crush you. You're able to say, I, I know, I'm sure I did that. You don't, but here's what you don't know. You don't know the half of it. I'm twice as worse as you think I am. Listen, the people who are most free and joyful are the people who know they are truly and deeply loved. You are. And finally, you can live with courage. No matter what comes, you can have confidence. You can live with courage. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen He's standing before the religious council. And they are so angry at him. And he preaches to try to show them who Jesus is. And they drag him out of the city and they pick up stones. And even as they're picking him up, the text is they, they looked at him. They saw his face. It looked like an angel. But they pick up the stones and they start... Hurling it. They're stoning him to death. And it says Stephen looked up and he saw God in all of his glory and Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand. He's advocating, welcoming, while the court on earth is condemning. Jesus Christ is commending him. So Stephen's able to forgive those that are stoning him. He's not prideful. He's not self-defensive. He's not angry. It's joy. That comes from knowing God through Jesus, your advocate, whom you are 
in. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for the storyline, this thread of Melchizedek, this, this one who is dropped into Abraham's story for a real purpose, a real place, a real time in history. And yet, Father, even then, before the law, before the priests, before the temple, you knew what you were doing. And Father, how we can look back and so clearly see your Son, Jesus, the King who is the High Priest, the One who brings you to us and the One who brings us to you and there is no tension because He's resolved it in Himself. And so Father, we stand before you in Him, justified, cleansed, pure, beautiful. Father, I pray we would we would be caught hold of that truth this morning. It would, that it would grip us and not let it go. Father, for anybody here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, as their High Priest, and are living to try to justify themselves, Father, would you work in their heart? Would you give them eyes to see your Son? Would you draw them to a saving faith in Him. So Father, we ask this the only way we can in the name of Your Son Jesus and by the power of Your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.